This, this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. Their three-game weekend series in Fenway. Tied at one in the bottom of the fourth inning. Josh Donaldson just got picked off to end the third inning. Just uh, the end the fourth inning for the Yankees. I mean, Josh Donaldson might be, especially now that Aaron Hicks is gone, um, Donaldson might end up being one of the most unpopular Yankees to Yankee fans in the last 25 years. He has just been, a, and with Donaldson, you have to factor in, like at least Hicks, and fans were tired of, of Aaron Hicks. At least he was only making $10 million. Josh Donaldson, they're paying this guy $25 million. How about this? I was looking up some numbers regarding the Yankees' payroll. By the way, U.S. Open's going on right now. Uh, Mets lose to the Cardinals 8-7, lose the weekend series. Yankees lost already today to Boston. First game of the split doubleheader. The Yankees' salary, and, and, and this is where the Yankees are in trouble right now because without Aaron Judge, you need guys to pick up the slack. And there's only a few named guys in the lineup with track records that you can count on. I mean, again, here's today's lineup. It's Bowers, Torres, Rizzo, Stanton, Donaldson, McKinney, Cabrera, Higashioka, and Volpe. That's the Yankees' lineup today. So Bowers is your leadoff hitter, and he's been playing pretty well. He has no track record. You have Billy McKinney batting sixth. He's been between AAA and the majors his entire career. Oswaldo Cabrera has a 545 OPS, where 750 is about the league average. He's 205 points below that. Kyle Higashioka, Anthony Volpe, those are not household names that you're going to want to count on. The guys on the Yankees roster without Aaron Judge that have a track record that you need to produce are Stanton, are LeMahieu, are Torres, and are Josh Donaldson. I mean, the Yankees are the rare Major League Baseball team that has, when everybody's healthy, in its starting lineup, three former most valuable players. Donaldson being the third. You know, Judge, obviously, last year, Stanton won the MVP the year before the Yankees traded for him, and then Josh Donaldson won it with the Blue Jays nearly 10 years ago at this point. The problem for the Yankees is, yeah, they have three MVPs in their lineup when everybody's healthy. Only one of them did it as a Yankee. But get this. This year, Stanton is being paid $32 million. LeMahieu is being paid $15 million. Torres is making $9.5 million, which actually feels like a bargain. And Donaldson is making $21 million this year, not twenty-five. And then they are still play, paying Aaron Hicks $10.5 million. So when you add up Stanton, LeMahieu, Torres, Donaldson, and Hicks, those five players, the Yankees are paying $88 million this season. To those five players. That's not counting Judge, their highest paid player. That's not counting Garrett Cole, their second highest paid player. Who are their best two players, by the way, by far. $88 million for Stanton, LeMahieu, Torres, Donaldson, and Hicks. That's $11 million more than the entire payroll of the Tampa Bay Rays. That's $21 million more than the entire payroll of the Baltimore Orioles. And the Rays are running away with the best record in baseball. And the Orioles, at the start of the day today, had the third best record in baseball. And the entire Tampa Bay team makes less, $11 million less, than Stanton, LeMahieu, Torres, Donaldson, and Aaron Hicks. It's just very, very poor roster construction. And the Mets, we'll get back to them in a moment, the Mets are in even worse shape with their roster construction because the Mets are spending a ton more money than even the Yankees are, and they have far fewer answers than the Yankees do. 
So New York baseball right now, I know the Yankees' record on paper, 39-32. and 32. They're in a playoff spot right now. This does not have the feel of a playoff team. And we don't even know when Aaron Judge is going to come back. They're lost without him. Absolutely lost without him. Now, the good news for the Yankees is they're getting pretty good starting pitching, and their bullpen has been really good all season long. That's the difference. That's why the Yankees are seven games above 500 and why the Mets are five games below 500 because the Mets' starting staff has been inconsistent and their bullpen has been bad. The Yankees' starting staff has been pretty good. Cole's been great. Herman's been up and down. Clark Schmidt's been much better lately. Severino's been up and down. And the Yankees' bullpen has been great. But Severino's pitching well tonight, but here they go. The Yankees are in trouble now. Red Sox have the bases loaded with one out in the bottom of the fourth inning in a 1-1 game. And again, the Yankees this morning or earlier today, three batters into the game, Yankees scored two runs on a two-run home run from Glaber Torres. They didn't score the rest of the game. Today, three batters into the game, they score a run on an RBI ground out by Anthony Rizzo. And they have done absolutely nothing since. This offense is atrocious. 1-800-919-3776. Pat O'Keefe with you on 98.7 ESPN New York. Let's go back to the phones. Jay in Lakewood checks in. Jay, how you doing? What up, Pat? I love the energy, and I appreciate you taking my call. I got, I got two major points to make with the Mets, and I know they're going to sound radical, but first of all, something's got to be up with Marte. I mean, even in the outfield, people struggle in the batter box, but even in the outfield, the guy is – He's, he doesn't cut balls off the way he used to. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that something's been going on with him, either physically or in his personal life. But the real issue we have right now is it's easy to point at everything in general in the Mets, but specifically Buck Showalter has – I mean, it's easy to hate on the manager, but he's really, really, really cost us game after game after game. Like today's obvious Robertson, eight pitches, one, two, three inning. He might not have looked the greatest. Adovino is never a good answer. I mean, it's unfortunate that Diaz is out for the year, but Adovino is an absolute joke. You knew he was giving up a run, and it, the, the odds that the Mets are going to come out and score, Alonzo needs a couple days to get back from his stuff. The fact that they're putting so much pressure on Alvarez is definitely not good for his growth. And can we stop put, using these platoon players that are 37 years old at 33 years old as like everyday starters. Guillaume doesn't belong in that lineup. The Mets are not competitive this year. Put the enters in there. Let someone learn. What What is going on here? I agree with you on Buck Walter today. I don't think he's the biggest problem on this team this season. Um, I don't think Buck has a I lot hear of you. Answers. I hear you. If you look at, if you look at their bullpen, I mean, their bullpen has stunk, but so many moves Buck Walter. Honestly, this is what this is what I believe, and I was talking to a couple of friends about this, and they're like, you know what? It's very possible. It sounds radical, but it is very possible. Buck Showalter is going through early-stage Alzheimer's. It, there's no other answer. Like, the guy is totally clueless. He's putting in Daniel Vogelback as a pinch hitter in the ninth inning. The guy was starting him for, like, two months straight until Cohn told him, it's either you or Vogelback. So he said, okay, Vogelback. <laughs> I think that's a little radical, Jay, and thanks for the call. Um, look, the moves today were head-scratching, to say the least. The way that Vogelback for Canna, after giving Vogel— first of all, giving a guy a 10-day rest, 10 days is a lot. And Buck was asked about that on Wednesday before the Yankees game. Did he think about putting Vogelback on the injured list? 
and uh, he said he wasn't injured. He was just giving a, he gave him a week and a half off to clear his head. I mean, you give a guy a day, two days to clear your head, not a week and a half. And then to bring him back and, you know, Cano had a good good game today. He had a good game going. He got a hit. He walked a couple of times. He was on base three times. I guess you're looking for that one pop. A Cano can put the ball over the wall for sure. He hasn't been great either. Vogelback, and he, he got a, actually a pretty good at bat and put a good swing on it. But you know, Vogelback has not been an answer. Buck doesn't have a lot of places to turn, you know. When the team underperforms like it has, you have to try to try different things. Buck is not the problem. Now, the way he managed this game today, I definitely had an issue with how he handled the bullpen late in the game. Bringing in Robertson in the eighth inning. Okay. Now, the only time Robertson is by far and away, and here's the one area where I will disagree with our last caller. When he says Adam Adam Adovino is never the answer, Adam Adovino is probably. And by the way, Severino just got a bases loaded one out uh, with giving up a run, so Boston now leads two to one. Adam Adovino is the second best option in the Mets bullpen. So whether you want to say he's never the answer, you can't say that because even if you don't have confidence in him, he's the second best option in the Mets bullpen, and that's on the front office. That's not on Buck. But here's where I have the issue today. You're playing a team that is lousy in the Cardinals, and you fall behind 5-1. to one, And you battle back to make it 5-4, and then they make it 6-4. And then you battle back to tie it 7-7, seven, seven, and it stays that way for a while. So you've been fighting uphill all afternoon. And then you bring in Robertson, your best guy in the eighth inning, in a tie game. Now, the usually the only time you'll bring in your top relief pitcher ahead of the ninth inning in a close game is when you want him to navigate the middle of the other team's lineup. And that's not what the Cardinals had in the eighth inning. They had their eighth, ninth, and first batters up in the eighth. And Robertson got them out, one, two, three, used eight pitches. So now you're looking ahead to the ninth inning. Well, he only threw eight pitches in the eighth. You need this game. You don't want to fall five games below 500 again. He only threw eight pitches in the eighth inning. And then you bring in a lesser pitcher in Ottavino to pitch to the middle of the order for the Cardinals. It didn't make any sense to me on multiple levels. It didn't make sense going to Robertson in the eighth unless you were committed to having him pitch the eighth and the ninth inning. And then you are given this gift when he only uses eight pitches to get through the eighth inning. That was a gift. And you still didn't take advantage of the gift, and you bring in Adovino, and he gives it the home run to Nolan Arenado. And that's all she wrote. So I didn't like the way he managed this game today. Look, Buck Showalter, at this stage in his career, there are so many holes on this roster. Like I said, he doesn't have a lot of answers and a lot of places to turn. But if this season continues along this downward trajectory, this will be his last season in New York. I'm confident in saying that. I don't think that he deserves to be replaced midseason. I don't think he's the problem on this team. Again, I keep saying it. Opening day, they're running out onto the field and being announced at City Field, name after name after name. And I'm like, this team is not that good. And everybody raves about the payroll. <clears throat> well, let's let's take a closer look at the payroll. In fact, let's take a break. We'll take a break. We'll take a closer look at the Mets payroll because everybody wants to point to the fact that they have the highest payroll in Major League Baseball, but it's not 
all being allocated on the field the way people think. That, more of your calls, more on the NBA, and we'll continue to follow the Yanks and the Red Sox here at 98.7 ESPN New York. This this is the Pat O'Keefe Show. All right, Boston leading the Yankees 2-1. No signs of any offense uh, in the immediate future for the Yankees as they look to avoid a three-game sweep. Severino's pitched well. Uh, Yankees are, with their offense, going against a Red Sox pitcher, pitcher without a track record. And still, you look at the lineup tonight. Rizzo's 0 for 2. Stanton's 0 for 2 with two strikeouts. Donaldson is 0 for 1 with a walk. And the one time he walked, he got picked off of first base to end the fourth inning. Cabrera's 0 for 2. Higashioka's 0 for 2. Volpe is 0 for 2. So the Yankees as a team are 2 for 16. Jake Bowers has a hit and a run, excuse me, a hit and a run and a walk. And Glaber Torres is 1 for 2. I mean, is it me or is Jake Bowers the best player on the Yankees right now? Is he the best player on the Yankees? He's playing like it right now. Here's the deal. It goes back to Torres, who's been okay. You know, Torres, somebody described Torres this way to me, and I completely agree. Torres always does just enough. Remember for a couple of years, Rex Ryan did just enough to not get fired as the head coach of the Jets. You know, they'd finish 8-8. Eight and eight. It would be disappointing. If he was 7-9, and nine, he might have been let go a little earlier than he was. He always seemed to do just enough to keep his job as head coach after those first two years where they had all that success. Torres is very similar. His first two years, he had a ton of success. He was an all-star. He was doing things at such a young age in Yankees history that only DiMaggio and Mantle had done at that age. And then he really kind of went into the doldrums for two years. They moved him to shortstop. He didn't handle the COVID season well. And the last two years, he's been okay. He has not come close to approaching his production from his first two seasons in 2018 and 2019. I mean, 2019, this guy had 38 home runs. I know 32 of them, it seemed, came against the Orioles that season, but he has not come close to that. But he's not terrible. He does just enough that you say, oh, okay, Torres is okay. But Rizzo had a great start to the season, and he's been bad. Stanton hasn't done anything. He's batting 207. He's slugging 446. Donaldson is a disaster with a 157 batting average. These are the guys that are supposed to carry the team. You know, I've gone through all these phases with Josh Donaldson on this show this season. Where when he got hurt a week and a half into the season, I said, this is the best thing that could happen to the Yankees. Because now you don't have to worry about playing him every single day. And you could keep Volpe at shortstop, and you could put DJ at third base, and you could put Torres at second, and you could put Rizzo at first, and you could finally get some consistency on the infield. But then LeMahieu didn't hit. And then Rizzo started to go into the tank. And Volpe, and I still agree that you've got to run him out there because he's the future at that position. But he has been non-productive for large stretches. So now all of a sudden you're getting nothing out of your infield except for Glaber Torres, who's been okay. And then Judge goes down, so it leaves an even more gaping hole. And Stanton was gone for his usual month-long, month-and-a-half-long absence to the injured list, so it left an even bigger hole. So now you're at the point where you're like, you need Josh Donaldson to come back because you're playing a bunch of young guys that aren't even prospects. They're just young guys. So they're young guys without a track record and without a huge skill set. Josh Donaldson is at least a guy who's got a track record. You needed him to come back. You needed him to perform. And then, you know, he comes back his first game back in Los Angeles. He hits a couple of home runs. You're like, okay, this is a huge, huge addition. 
this is his time to kind of endear himself to Yankees fans. And again, he's done nothing since. He's done absolutely nothing since. He's a good glove at third base, and he has been a disaster at the plate. He was bad at the plate in the regular season. He was terrible at the plate in the postseason. And he's been embarrassing at the plate so far this season. He has done absolutely nothing since coming to New York. And he's being paid $21 million. He himself is being paid about a quarter of what the Tampa Bay Rays are spending on their entire team. It's outrageous. It really is. You can't make this stuff up. And that's why the Yankees are losing right now 2-1. to one. Severino is pitching well. This is a big bounce-back start for him. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that the Yankees are going to play another run in this game unless Stanton runs into one, unless Rizzo runs into one, or unless Glaber Torres runs into one. That's where the offense is going to come from. All right, let's go back to the phones, 1-800-919-3776. Jock in Spring Lake has been waiting patiently. Jock, how you doing tonight? Happy Father's Day, Pat O'Keefe, and too much negativity with the baseball. Let's talk about the Knicks. And by the way, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, who's better, who's what? Steph Curry has checked every box as having a legacy, a great career, and everything else. Kevin Durant needs to win another championship. And if you watch that Denver Phoenix series, he looked normal. And he's never normal because he's an incredible offensive player. But he better get it done with Bradley Beal going out there. As for the Knicks, if you can't make one of these big deals, you know, you're talking about Bradley Beal or Carl Anthony Towns or et cetera, et cetera, Damian Lillard. And it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to go for an A player now. How can you make the team better if you're one of these people who says, let's just run it back with the team we had in the second half of the season that also won a you know round against Cleveland? Well, how about doing something like this that would still make the team whole and would make the team better? The Knicks starters were first in the NBA in starter scoring. The bench was 26th in the league in bench scoring, and they got wiped out in the Miami series by 95 points, and that was a big problem for the loss. How about taking Toppin and his 6 or $7 million and attaching him to Fournier with his $19 million? And then you search around the league to try to get a replacement for Toppin who's a scoring factor as a forward off your bench. So that if there are nights where RJ doesn't do well, you have plenty of people to fill into him. You know, if you've got to re-sign Hart, plenty of people to cover RJ. But when Randall doesn't have it going, can you get a real person? Something that we forget about with Boston last year is that Gallinari was signed, but he never played because he got hurt. Imagine Gallinari on Boston all year long playing with Brogdon on their second unit, and they might have been a lot better. Can you get someone who's kind of real that way, might be on a bad team right now, might be a veteran, might be a fifth starter on someone else's team, but take that $25 million of expiring money and fill the top and hole. I'm not saying the top and can't do it, but can you get a real guy and then run it back with the real guy. Interesting point, Jock, and I appreciate the call. To improve the Knicks bench, yeah, that's that's a good way to do it. And those numbers that you you, you laid out were, were evident in that Miami series. Um, 
I agree with you that Beal's not the answer right now because if you're going to go after Beal, right, go after Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell's better than Bradley Beal. He's younger than Bradley Beal. And at this point in his career, he's sturdier than Bradley Beal. And the Knicks showed now, now the price tag for Bradley Beal was not what Donovan Mitchell's price tag was. So uh, our, our caller saying maybe you don't go after the A player right now because I still don't think that the right fit is out there right now. And I, don't, I, I never thought Beal was the right fit. I think if Damian Lillard was a different sized player and a different type of player, he could be the right fit with his offensive talent. But that's a tough fit to go alongside Jalen Brunson in the backcourt. Um, you know, the Fournier contract, that's $18, $19 million, and it's an expiring contract. And Fournier, by the way, could help a team, especially if you only have to commit to him for one season. And at the trade deadline, you could spin him off into another team, once again, as an expiring contract. Toppin's issue on the bench is this. Now, Toppin played well when he moved into the starting lineup at the end of the season when Randall got hurt. But Toppin, you know, he, he plays well only – a certain way, right? He's got great energy off the bench. He's not a strong defensive player. And for a power forward, he's not a strong rebounder either. But what he is, he's a tremendously athletic player. He can get out and run. He can score in transition. And when he does, he makes his presence felt because it looks great and it's exciting. His three-point shooting was improved this season. The first game of the second round series against Miami when the Knicks lost. I think Toppin hit four three-pointers in that game. He was the only one who was hitting from downtown. So he can pop out and knock down an open three. But what Toppin can't do is he can't create offense for himself. The only way his points come are either in transition, using his athleticism, or knocking down open three-pointers when they are available. And yeah, can the Knicks, if Barrett doesn't have it going, can the Knicks replace that production on a given night? Sure. R.J. Barrett didn't play crunch time every single game last season. Some nights it was, you know, if you look at the way the Knicks rotation shook out last season and everybody wanted to get on R.J. because there were times where he wasn't playing crunch time and the number three pick in the draft, this homegrown Knicks star, and he just signed the contract extension last year. How can he not earn his spot in crunch time? Well, there, if you looked at the rotation last year, especially after they got Josh Hart, there weren't a lot of, there were more guys than spots available in crunch time. If you figure every single game in crunch time when the Knicks were healthy, when Julius was healthy, Brunson was out there, Randall was out there, and a center was out there, whether it was Mitchell Robinson or whether it was Isaiah Hartenstein. That left two spots for R.J. Barrett, for Quinton Grimes, for Emmanuel Quickly, and for Josh Hart. Hart was usually out there also because Tom Thibodeau liked his defense and just liked the way he played. So now you're talking one spot for Grimes, for Barrett, for Quickly. Who's the best all-around player among those three? It's R.J. Barrett. But... Emmanuel quickly had his best NBA season. There were some nights where for stretches he was the best offensive player on the floor if he would get hot. And then there were also other games where the way the game dictated it, you wanted Quinton Grimes out there because he's a better shooter than R.J. Barrett and he's a better defender than R.J. Barrett. So there were times when Barrett wasn't even on the floor during crunch time a lot of times and people wanted to jump all over him because... He should be out there all the time as the number three overall pick. But if you actually – you can't make that statement without actually breaking down the Knicks rotation and seeing where everybody fit. And I'll just say one more thing about R.J. Barrett. He was the number three pick, so people expect more. Well, what are the top two picks from that draft doing? The 2019 draft. The top pick, Zion Williamson's a two-time All-Star. He missed one entire season already, and this past season – 
on his way to being named an all-star for the second time. He strained his hamstring on the fifth on the second of January, and he never played again. And the number two pick, John Morant, all NBA level player, eight game suspension last season, torpedoed his team's season. Torpedoed it. They were the number two seed in the Western Conference. They were the one team that if you were to pick a team with all of its assets and talent and how young they were and how they were constructed, the Memphis Grizzlies would be a top five team that you would want to take over. And Morant threw his off-court actions, threw all of that in the garbage, and he ruined their promising season. And then he did it again in the offseason, and he has now been suspended for 25 games to begin next year. So those are the two guys above R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett, who from the, his biggest transgressions are, he's not a great three-point shooter. He forces shots, and because of that, sometimes he does not find himself on the court during crunch time. Small potatoes, when you compare his transgressions to those of the number two pick in his draft, to whom he is so often compared, and the number one pick in that draft, to, to, to whom he is so often compared. So think about that. Good call. 1-800-919-3776. Back with more as we uh, continue to follow things in Fenway as the Yanks are having a tough time against the Boston Red Sox again on 98.7 ESPN New York. This is... Is the Pat O'Keefe Show. The roster, whether that's a Fournier, whether that's a Derrick Rose. I mean, Fournier and Derrick Rose, the, the, the Knicks have a team option on Derrick Rose that they could actually pick up if they could find a spot for him in a trade. And if you were to come upon a star in the league who makes in the $35 million a year range, you could pair Fournier and Derrick Rose and that gets you to $35 million, and that matches the salary. And then, of course, you'd have to throw in draft picks because that's likely the compensation that the other team would want. And the Knicks have, as we have said, a treasure trove of draft picks, although maybe not as many as we thought. Because as I pointed out earlier, Washington, which just traded Bradley Beal, owes the Knicks their draft pick in 2024, but it's top 12 protected. Well, Washington's breaking the whole thing down. So the Knicks likely are not getting that draft pick next year. It's top 12 protected. If they don't get it, it rolls over to 2025 when it's top 10 protected. Still a decent chance the Knicks don't get it that year. If they don't, then it rolls over to 2026 where it's top 8 protected. So maybe the Knicks get it then. If they don't, then they don't get it. And there's just an asset that's out the window. So if you're the Knicks, you might want to trade that pick now while you can, while it still has some sort of value. It's like a stock that you know is going to be possibly worth nothing someday in the future. Get rid of it now. Make it somebody else's problem. But if you can improve, look, th think about the Knicks season last year, surprising in so many ways. And uh, it got off to an expected start. The Knicks were supposed to, according to the experts' projections, win in the range of 37 to 41 games and hopefully contend for a spot in the play-in tournament. And the way the season started out, that's kind of who they were the first 20, 25 games of the season. They were 10-13. and 13. They got blown out by Dallas on December 3rd at Madison Square Garden. They were booed out of the building. Some people in the building that day thought Tom Thibodeau was going to get fired that day. And then the next day, they blow out the Cavaliers, they hold them to like 83 points, and that starts an eight-game winning streak, and it turns the entire season around. And then they went through their ups and downs over the next couple of months, and then 
the Josh Hart trade right before the trade deadline, and it turned out to be, you know, the perfect piece for exactly what they needed. It bolstered the bench, um, and then they went on a nine-game winning streak immediately after trading for Josh Hart. But at the beginning of last season, I mean, you think about how many twists and turns there were. You know, the Knicks started last year with Evan Fournier in the starting lineup. They started last year with Derrick Rose as the backup point guard. And I was one of many people who said last year that Derrick Rose was going to be the most important player on the Knicks because I thought the biggest difference between the Knicks of 2022 when they didn't make the playoffs and the Knicks of 2021 when they had that surprising playoff run with the number four seed before losing to Atlanta, the biggest difference was in 2022 Derrick Rose was hurt and he didn't play after December. And the Knicks lost a huge part of their offensive production off the bench without Derrick Rose. But then early last season, through the first 20 to 23 games, it was clear that Evan Fournier wasn't the right fit defensively. Derrick Rose wasn't the right fit defensively. So Tom Thibodeau shortened the rotation. He gave an opportunity to a guy like Deuce McBride. Emmanuel Quickly's role was increased. Um... But by taking Derrick Rose out of the equation, the start of the season for the Knicks, you thought that their their strength was going to be their bench, like that unit led by Rose. Rose and Toppin and Emmanuel quickly. And as it turned out, it was quite the opposite. You know, the Knicks relied so much on especially Brunson and Randall. And when Randall, except for the last five games after he sprained his ankle, he played every single game. And he put up huge numbers. And Brunson's numbers got better and better as the season went on. And R.J. Barrett was a, essentially a 20-point-per-game scorer. So the Knicks had, you know, Barrett was 19.6. But if you round up, the Knicks had three 20-point-per-game scorers in their starting lineup last season. So at the beginning of the year, when you were hoping for 37 to 41 wins and hoping to contend for the play-in tournament, instead what you got was 47 wins, the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, and a team that was not led by its bench, but instead led by its starting five with a lot of help from Emmanuel Quickly. But also remember, a lot of Quickly's numbers and production came towards the tail end of the season when Brunson was hurt and Quickly started a lot the last month of the season. So a lot of the numbers that he put up, yes, he was the runner-up for sixth man of the year, and in the playoffs he came off the bench, but a lot of the production that Emmanuel Quickly put forth late in the season was when he was in the starting lineup. So that's exactly what Phoenix is trying to do. Phoenix, what I said was what the Knicks should try to do is try to improve. If you can improve your playing rotation. So what they did last year with Josh Hart is a perfect example. Yes, they had to attach a first-round pick. And they traded that first-round pick, and they traded Cam Reddish, a guy who was out of the rotation for Josh Hart. So basically, you got a new sixth man or a seventh man, whatever it will be, for in Josh Hart, and you did not have to give up anybody in your rotation. If the Knicks can do that again, you know, use Fournier's 19 million, use Rose's 16 million to bring in somebody to improve that unit, like an Obi Toppin, that's, that's how you improve your team incrementally and get your team better. 1-800-919-3776. Now, that's what Phoenix did because Phoenix traded Chris Paul. Essentially, Washington just, they didn't want to pay Bradley Beal anymore. 
The Wizards didn't want to pay Beal $50 million a year. He's 30 years old. He's owed $200 million over the next four years. So they would have had to pay him upwards of $50 million when he's 33 years old. And the guy hasn't played more than 60 games in the last three and a half years. And they just didn't want to do that. They just didn't think that that's the way, that that was the best path to contention. And essentially, this is a franchise that has never contended. They haven't contended since 1979. I was born in 1979. That was a freaking long time ago. All right? It's been an irrelevant franchise. And the path to contention does not go through paying a 33-year-old who has only who has never been to the conference finals $50 million. So they wanted to get off that so badly. What Phoenix had to offer, they didn't have any first-round picks to offer. Those all went to Brooklyn last year in the Durant trade. What they offered was the financial flexibility for, for Washington. They took Bradley Beal's contract, and they sent back Chris Paul's contract, which Washington could use Chris Paul, which is, I think, the most unlikely scenario. I don't think Paul ever suits up for Washington. They could buy him out and only owe him $15 million this coming season, or they could spin him off to a third team that needs him and accumulate even more assets. And Phoenix was able to get that done and improve their team by giving up a guy who was not in their future plans anyway in Chris Paul. Adrian Wojnarowski earlier today on primetime on ESPN Radio spoke about how this deal happened. Two things limited Washington's leverage in doing a trade. One is the no trade clause that Brad Beal has. He's the only player in the league who negotiated it. He has final say over not only where he goes, but but what they could get back for him. And two, the amount of money left on his deal, over $200 million over four years, with the new collective bargaining agreement in place, uh, what's called the second apron, which is going to perhaps act like a hard cap for teams there was much less of an appetite around the league to take on a contract of a player who's going to be making 50, 53, $57 million in the last three years of his deal. That combined, you know, led them to Phoenix. All right, so Beal goes to Phoenix. As for Washington, they get Chris Paul, they get Landry Shamit, they'll get some second-round picks, big deal, and they'll get the opportunity for some pick swaps, but those likely aren't going to convey either because what are the chances that Phoenix with Durant and Booker and Beal end up being worse than Washington? So what's next for Washington? Yeah, they've got some other decisions here with Chris Depps, Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma. Those players have decisions on player options. And now Washington, I think, starts to head down a path of, of, of trying to reboot a franchise that's kind of been chasing the middle, I think, for a number of years, five straight years, without a winning record, four of those no trips to the playoffs with a pretty high payroll and some veteran players, that just didn't work anymore for Ted Leosis. As far as Phoenix, you have Durant, you have um, Booker, and now you have Bradley Beal. You also have DeAndre Ayton. They made the second round of the playoffs. They were tied two games apiece with Denver. They didn't have a lot of depth. They ran out of steam. Um, what are the next steps for Phoenix? It'll be interesting. I mean, Chris Paul obviously will be gone as part of this deal. DeAndre Ayton right now is still on the roster. But, yeah, there's no question this is a Phoenix team, um, you know, that'll look to re-sign Torrey Craig, uh, Jock Landale, their backup center. But, you know, they're going to have to uh, be out in recruiting mode in free agency again with the veteran minimum deals, which is around $3 million a year, and see if there are players who – 
you know, certainly like the idea of competing for a championship in Phoenix, uh, certainly a warm weather destination. It's always been a popular place uh, for players to play in and, and a chance certainly to play with that group. You would think, you know, that that might be appealing to some, but in the end, are you going to get players to take less money to do that? You know, that'll be the challenge in building out the rosters at a bench. It's going to take a lot of work. Woj, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski on primetime on ESPN Radio earlier this evening talking about the uh, upcoming blockbuster trade that will send Bradley Beal to the Phoenix Suns in exchange for Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, and some additional assets. We'll take a break, uh, update you on the U.S. Open. It's getting late. It's still bright and sunshiny in Los Angeles, but only 